good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to be back in the house of the Lord. I can't remember the last time I missed two weeks in a row um, recuperating, but good to be back. And I'm pretty impressed that we have such a nice turnout. And uh, it's a testimony to your love for the Lord that you battle your way through the monsoons and the winds to get here. I tell you, I'm, I'm driving in. I felt like I was in that movie, Twister, you know, tree branch, cow. I'm swerving left and right, but I made it. And uh, it's great to be here. It's great. Thank you, worship team. And to hear, um, of all days, just uh, of the sovereign grace of God um, that ties so well into our text this morning. But before we get into that, um, I actually, I think I only have one announcement, and that is that uh, we're having a fellowship meal immediately after the service today, and uh, you don't need to know anything else other than bacon is involved. So it looks really good, it smells fantastic, and the guys have set up across the street, so no one's going to be sitting in the alley with their, with their uh, umbrella. We're going to go across the street afterwards and enjoy a meal together and, and just a great time of fellowship. So hope you can join us with that. My message this morning is from Acts 4.23 through 31. And I'm calling this message Boldness in the Sovereignty of God. Before I open up, let me, let me open in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to you, we come to the sovereign God of all creation, as we're going to see here in this text. And Father, we want to acknowledge, we want to proclaim that you truly are sovereign over all events, all circumstances. Father, it is your sovereign grace that was extended to us, that we now sit here, have knowledge of you by the power of your Holy Spirit, and give our thanks, our gratitude, our praise, our worship, because you sovereignly reached into our lives. Father, caused us to be born again, to receive your spirit and eternal life. Father, as we <clears throat> look at this text today, I just I pray that you go before me, that you would give me clarity, help me to communicate well what these believers were experiencing at this time. And the Father, we can learn from their experience and go out into to life with their kind of boldness, Father God. We pray this, this thing in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so we're in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Let me read our text. It says, when they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. This is, this is Peter and John. And when they, the believers, 
heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word, your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So we're jumping in to this tail end of Acts chapter 4. And it opens with Peter and John being released from jail. And it says that they go directly to their friends. And it's, that friends is an interesting word. It's, it literally means to their own. And they report what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. It was only Peter and John that were privy to all the events and the proclamations that they made And if you remember, it was these two, after healing a man born lame in the beautiful gate at the entrance of the temple, they had been surrounded by a crowd of astonished people, seeing a man walk that they knew had been lame for 40 years from his birth. They knew this man. As the apostles preached Christ, it says the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So the apostles were arrested, put before the full council the next day. And in verse 7, it says their rulers demanded to know by what power or by what name did you do this? Do you hear the authority and the power that they feel they are speaking with? This is important to notice. Peter responds boldly. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter said, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The apostles, having been warned and threatened to no longer speak in the name, were released 
And so they report back to their friends how the chief priests and the elders warned and threatened them. And as we looked at last time we were in Acts, for the first time the apostles and the church are facing hostility and opposition. So this passage follows this really serious confrontation with the rulers leading to an arrest and threats. And it really is a moment of decision, isn't it? What will be the tenor of the church moving forward? Will it be one of fear and timidity? Or will it be bold and confident? What we will find in this text is that their grasp of the sovereignty of God will impact their response. Simply because the sovereignty of God impacts everything. Everything. And what we see in their prayer that follows is the believer's conviction in several things about sovereignty. And first we see right off the bat their conviction in the sovereignty of God over creation. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We see their conviction in how they address God. They say, Sovereign Lord. This is actually a rarely used, only a few times in the New Testament word. And it, it, the Greek word is actually despatos. And you can guess we get the word despot from it, right? It's a, it's a term of, of absolute rule, Lord and Master. It emphasizes that all creation, everything in it is subject to the sovereign rule of God. And of course, these believers fully aware of the Old Testament record would know the Old Testament is just replete with these references. Of course, Genesis 1 and 2 is solely devoted to the power of God in proclaiming by the word of his mouth the creation of all things. But we could go to dozens of other references where we see Israel calling upon God who created all things. Let's look at just a few remember when Moses gave the Ten Commandments to Israel? One of those said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God was commanding them to do so. Why? Because of how important it is that we remember their God is sovereign creator of all things. Exodus 20.11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God commanded the record of God's sovereign work of creation was to be forever acknowledged in their faith and practice. God's people must understand God is the source and sustainer of all things. 
There is nothing that is not subject to him, nor does not come from him. Another text we could look at from Isaiah, when, if you remember when the Assyrians were coming against, the, coming against Israel and all hope seemed, seemed lost, they were under siege, starvation, annihilation, and King Hezekiah cried out to the creator of all things. Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the, of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear that all the kingdoms of the, of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. His confidence was in God who created all things. Or we could look at Nehemiah in 445 B.C., was sent by the Persian king Artaxerxes to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but found himself opposed and threatened on every side. In chapter 9, verse 6, we see him cry out, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So over and over, Israel cried out for help to God because he is the creator. And as creator, he is sovereign, even over their most feared enemies. The psalmist, of course, repeat this theme over and over again. Psalm 124, 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 146, 5 through 6, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and who keeps faith forever. This is why it is so important to see the sovereignty of God throughout the biblical story. Israel faced seemingly insurmountable obstacles and unbeatable foes. But they could say, whom shall we fear? Our God spoke the cosmos into being. He is our defense. And just like Israel, we can look with confidence to our sovereign creator God and say, just like the writer of Hebrews, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Well, in this scene in Acts, Peter and John and all the believers knew God was sovereign over creation. And that's the first statement in their prayer, declaring it even to God. And even as they heard the warnings and the threats from their rulers, 
They knew God was also sovereign over the hostility of men. The believers knew that throughout history, whenever the kingdom of, of man, I'm sorry, the kingdom of God had threatened the kingdom of man, the kings of the earth had futilely sought to defy God. In verse 25 and 26, the believers quote the prophetic words of Psalm 2, praying to God who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. I think it is clear that they saw their circumstances reflected in this psalm. And it was the psalmist that saw the vanity or the vain, worthless attempt for the people to plot against God in their anger. It says they set themselves. And you can picture it. It means to plant yourself in opposition against they set themselves in opposition against God, clearly defined sides. And it says they gathered together. And it's this sense that they're gathering all their power that they have to set themselves against God. But their numbers and their strength will not let them stand. not against the Lord and his anointed. How foolish and futile this is when you just read it. It's really almost unimaginable to think that we would do this as human beings. But as hard as it is to imagine, the book of Revelation tells us there is coming that final day when all the kings of the earth will come against God and in all his host in an attempt to overthrow the Lord. But their efforts will be in vain. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation, verse 11, says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The believers knew the hostility of those who opposed the kingdom of God is futile, for God is sovereign over even them. And then we see in verse 27 to 28, they knew God is sovereign even over the conspiracies that they form against his Christ. It says in verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The believers understood that the crucifixion of Jesus was according to the preordained plan of God, and God was sovereign over their evil intent. 
And though a Jewish king, a Roman governor, Gentile soldiers, Jewish rulers, and, and, and a mob of citizens conspired to kill and crucify God's anointed Christ. This is the amazing thing. They were acting within the sovereign plan of God. This point is made clear numerous times by the apostles before this and after in the book of Acts, but certainly in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, if you remember his first sermon, he addressed the crowd saying, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is what the ruling Jews, the Romans, the mob never foresaw. The crucifixion of Christ was not, not a victory for them. It was a victory for God and over sin and over death. It was the plan of God who is sovereign over even those who would conspire against him and his Christ. And you know, this is, it's so helpful for us to remember because just when events seem to be going horribly wrong, circumstances seem to be at their darkest, blackest point, I can testify to you that Nothing comforts me like the knowledge of God's perfect and absolute sovereignty. I've long held Isaiah 46.10 is one of my favorite verses, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And because we know that all God's plans for his people are for our good and his glory, we can rejoice in all circumstances. You know, that's really an Old Testament way of saying what Paul says in Romans 28 and 29, that those verses we know so well And we know that for those who love God, all things, and we know that for those who love God, all things, because in parentheses, for he is sovereign over all things, work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in the order of in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We all know Romans 28, don't we? But how often do we realize how saturated its promises are 
in the sovereignty of God. And finally, the believers knew the Holy Spirit is the sovereign God who fills, empowers, and emboldens the believer. Look at verse 29 and 30. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Here's a question for us. Why did the believers pray for boldness? If they understood academically the sovereignty of God, why would you pray for boldness? Well, first, one thing that I think is extremely encouraging to remember is that they prayed for boldness because they understood God could grant boldness. And second, because they knew no matter how much they know or understand or how successful they've been, we never outgrow our need for God's equipping and empowering Holy Spirit. A continual reliance on God. So, how about you? Are you willing to ask God for boldness or power to do what you never thought you could do? A little bit of personal testimony. I can tell you, I never would have stepped into this pulpit if I did not, if I, if I was not convinced of the sovereignty of God that, 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 that he is adequate, even when I am absolutely not adequate. But we all face those choices, don't we? To face what we never thought we could face. And I love this picture, this imagery that's used, how the believers ask God to stretch out his hand. They see the extension of the power of God from heaven available to them. It's a picture of how God extends his sovereign power into our lives and into our ministries, really. He projects his power where he chooses to project his power and it accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. Well, perhaps at this point, we should ask, what does the sovereignty of God apply to the life of the modern-day believer look like? What does it look like to us? How do we apply this in a real practical way? Or put it another way, how should a, a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God affect our lives, our relationships, and our ministries? The answer to that is probably infinite. as infinite as the sovereignty of God itself. But I think we can say for certain the following four areas should be transformed by the knowledge of the sovereignty of God. First, see the world through a biblical understanding of God as sovereign creator who is Lord and master over all things. 
In our culture, we are literally inundated by the message that there is no God, that's a myth, that's superstition. And that we're just random matter. Always existed. Put it another way, the prevailing wisdom says no one created everything from nothing. That is the greatest myth that's ever been put across. But the Bible tells us, and we can look to Hebrews 11.3 for a wonderful statement. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So we need to see the world through a biblical lens and an understanding of God as sovereign creator. Second, we need to see the events, the trials, the sufferings of our lives as subject to the sovereign rule, reign, and purpose of our creator God. And this is difficult because we are trained to see the material world and the events around us that take place as random, uncontrolled, cause and effect events. Train yourself to see the unseen hand of God in everything. Remember, if your knowledge of the sovereignty of God never translates into faith, you will never experience the joy and peace of God, the joy and peace God intends you'd have in this life. No no matter how much intellectual acceptance you have of the sovereignty of God, it must be translated into faith. Paul said to the Corinthian church in his second letter, chapter 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, are, are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or simply put in verse five, chapter 5, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. And third, though it may appear that the world that in the world there are powers not subject to the sovereignty of God and do not submit themselves to the sovereignty of God, ultimately they will. The Bible tells us so. God will accomplish all his purposes and plans and everything under heaven and earth will submit to the sovereignty of God. In Peter's second letter, he makes this really forebodingly clear, saying scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. A clear statement of God's sovereign grace for humanity. Fourth, and lastly, because everything we face is subject to the sovereign purpose and plan of God, we are free to leave the outcomes of those circumstances and events in the hands of God. Doesn't that give you just a sense of peace? I, you know, they're in God's hands. Or put another way, resist making your job to fix everything that is wrong around you. That's really hard for some of us. I know it is for me. Resist making it your job to fix everything that is wrong around you as if success or failure depends all on you. That's a big job. Let the knowledge of the sovereignty of God humble you enough to recognize you do not have that power. None of us do. And frankly, God did not intend us to have that power. So finally, why do we want boldness? And I'm going to leave you with this verse from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And here is why we want boldness. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We want boldness because God extended his hand of sovereign grace to us through his gospel. And he calls us to carry that same message of sovereign grace to those around us. So my exhortation to you to leave you with this morning is act boldly. Be courageous. Our sovereign God goes before us. Practically speaking, obediently pursue your calling without fear of failure or consequence 
knowing God is sovereign over all things, especially outcomes. Nurture. And this takes meditation. This takes thought. This takes spending quiet time alone with God. Nurture a view of God that is bigger than your circumstances and bigger than those who oppose him. And you know what? God will be glorified in that. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, sovereign creator, Lord of all things, in your, in your grace, you extend mercy and, and patience at this time to a world so lost, unknowing how deeply in rebellion they are against their creator. Father, we just thank you that in our own lives we have experienced so much grace, so much patience. Oh, Father, you have wiped away so much sin. And you did that by a sovereign act of grace, pouring out your Holy Spirit into our hearts. Father, we know, and the, the believers here knew and prayed for you to continue doing that work. You do not intend that work to stop with me or anyone else in this room. Your work continues. And Father, you have invited us to participate in that work and called us into some portion of the ministry to proclaim your gospel, to share your love, to extend grace to others. And Father, whenever we meet opposition or experience fear or uncertainty, Father, in those moments, we pray now that you would extend your hand, that you would grant us boldness, courage, and confidence in your sovereignty, Father God. We love you, Lord. We give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.